thank you, John, for giving us the opportunity to talk with you. And I, I know that you have been working for a very, very long time in the field uh, on, on multiple talents and how to develop uh, environments to, to support these talents. Can That's you, right, yeah. mm, why, why, how come that you are interested in this area? Ah, well, well, first of all, yes, um, my name's John Raven. Um, I have a website called Eye on Society, which would make it possible to, uh, for anyone who is interested, to follow up on what we've been doing. Actually, it's been 50 years. Um, we first, I first started writing about these topics when I was still a student in about 1959. And then about uh, 1962 or something, the British government decided that they needed to do something about the curriculum in schools. And we did a survey of what parents and teachers and pupils and employers thought the main goals of education were. And this produced um, a very interesting set of results to do with they wanted schools to help children develop their particular talents and abilities. They wanted to develop initiative and self-confidence and ability to communicate, ability to work with others and so on. Uh, but then when you looked at what happened in schools, very little happened uh, in these areas. And there was a question, okay, what could be done about this? And then all sorts of people made suggestions. Uh, but then much later, um, the Scottish government uh, was trying to promote the use of uh, project work in schools to and through project work to nurture these qualities like initiative and self-confidence and ability to find information and so on. And most of these projects were um, quite useless, really. The, the, the government had done its own survey of this project work and they actually wrote that only 5% of this project work was of any educational merit, of any, any benefit to the pupils in those schools. It tended to be something like Friday afternoon and the children would mess around in the classroom. So we were asked to go and look for some of these teachers in this 5% uh, who actually did something worthwhile. And uh, somehow this got mixed up with the study of museums, uh, education, and so on. So we did a, a survey of teachers in different schools and what they were doing in these environments. We found some schools that the teachers seemed to be doing something very interesting with this project work. And, and this is really one of the places where we started really to think about how did you create opportunities for uh, different children to develop their particular talents rather than being taught particular content by teachers and, test, and tested by these centralized tests of mathematics and language and so on. How could you nurture such things as uh, the ability to adventure into the unknown, the ability to find information, the ability to uh, get people other people to collaborate and, and these kind of things. And 
there were a small group of schools that did some very interesting things and we initially wrote this up with a description of what actually was going on in each of these schools separately and then our sponsor said well that's no good oh well, no then we were asked okay we were asked to find some examples of good practice to describe what was going on in such a way that other people could do likewise to identify the benefits so that more parents and teachers and pupils and politicians would think it was worthwhile and to identify the bar barriers. Why had nothing happened in the previous uh, 30 years since we did our initial surveys? So these were the, the, the terms of our terms of reference. So we got, went to these schools, observed what was going on, talked to the parents and teachers and pupils and so on. And then we had individual descriptions of these different schools. And then these people in the government office said, well, that's no good. Uh, that doesn't really give us an account of, you know, how to encourage other teachers to do likewise. So we kind of put these together to make some kind of uh, composite description of what was going on in these schools. And, and this made one composite that was based really on more or less around what one school was doing. And this was very, very interesting. So I'll say a bit more about that. So uh, the first thing was uh, that the teacher herself was extremely interesting. She had realized that most education is extremely damaging to many pupils. And she decided to take control herself of this and try, try and do something about it. And she found that when she was working in big schools, this became impossible because you were constrained by what all the other teachers were doing and parents you had no contact with and one thing or another. So she moved herself into a small two-teacher rural school where they were, uh, had only two classes, one for uh, presumably five to eight-year-old and another class for eight to 11-year-old. So these are two classes, two teachers, very small school, local village where she could go and talk to the parents and explain what she was doing. And she didn't have to be bothered about other teachers who didn't want to be bothered and so on. She got control of the situation. Now, that's very interesting when you decide actually to take some control over your own life and get yourself into a position where you can actually do something important because you realize that what you're doing is damaging to other people. Anyway, so by the time we got there, um, she'd been, well, she'd been quite interesting the way she developed the strategies. So she'd have spent about 20 years then uh, developing strategies for how to do this. And she would find out about the work of some other teacher somewhere else and she would go and work with that teacher so that she got real experience of how to do this. So that she built up her own competence by going and working with other people who could show her how to do things. Anyway, so the, the, this school, she had um, been working away at this for about 20 years or something, gradually building this up. She had a lot of contact with the parents, so they knew what she was doing. So she had got them on her side, essentially. They weren't saying, hey, look, if you waste the children's time, 
doing this environmental work, then you will destroy their futures and so on. She had worked with the head teachers of these secondary schools that the children would be going to, and she got to set up a situation where she could actually do something. So the children were used to working in this way. It was nothing new to them. And in fact, before we got there, they had um, made some investigation of a local hill fort and, 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 and the, the historical remains and so on that were there. And the result of that had been that they had come to conclusions with evidence which questioned the original, uh, uh, the, the, the standard archaeological explanation of what had been going on. So they'd made a real contribution to, to the advance of understanding and knowledge and so on. Anyway, by the time we got there, uh, they were working on a project to do something about the pollution in the local river. Mm -hmm. And and um, so, okay, the classes agreed they would do this. Um, so, but anyway, there were a couple of, you know, these children were very young, 8 to 11 years old. A couple of guys in this, a couple of boys in this group, uh, well, they were kind of scientifically oriented and they knew exactly what needed to be done about this. So what you've got to do is make a study of the pollution in the river water and then you write a report about this and then the government would do something, they thought. So they went off down to the bridge and the river bank and with these jam jars and they collected samples of this river water. And now, oh, we're going to measure the pollution in this water. So, you know, metaphorically, they were scratching their heads saying, what do we do about this? And of course, the teacher had no idea how you actually measure pollution in any scientific sense that would influence a government. And then these children started, uh, this time there was no internet, they're looking for uh, books and things, uh, encyclopedias that would help them analyze this water. Now, what was important was that this reading was not like the standard reading test in schools. They give children set material to read and then answer some questions pre-formulated by the teacher or the examiner on that material. Now, what these boys were doing were looking for material that would help them deal with their problem. They were not reading in this traditional school sense at all. And they could skim through these books and look just for what they were interested in and essentially discard all the other written material along the way. So there's a very distinctive type of reading they were engaging in compared with what normally goes on in schools. Anyway, they didn't get much help from this. And then somehow or other, they uh, persuaded their parents and the teacher and so on that what they needed to do was to go to the local university, which was about 30 kilometers away. And they went, had to go on a bus and so on. I don't remember whether they had some parent win with them or not. But anyway, they went off to the, this university with their jam jars 
and they looked for, uh, well, presumably they had found something beforehand about which department to go to, and they went to this environmental studies department, and they found some lecturers who were willing to talk to these young children, which of course is difficult, you've got more and more difficult as universities become more and more constricted on what they can do. Anyway, it then turned out that this problem is one of the most difficult problems for uh, environmentalists to study because there can be all sorts of different kinds of pollution. It is very difficult to make an assessment. It requires uh, thinking about all different sort different things. So what they're now doing is involved in a, a genuine scientific study at the edge of available knowledge. Nobody knew how to do this, um, but they could try different things. Well, so now, okay, how do you relate this back mm. to the school? So, uh, John, sorry, sorry, may I shortly interrupt you, uh, just to be sure to understand perfectly. So the difference here was that it the pupils did not. It was not about learning. Um, With, with memory, uh, uh, learning some things by heart or learning how to keep in mind some, some content out of books and then if you, there are some, some exams to repeat it. But it was about learning to, to get, uh, let's say, competencies to, yeah, simply to solve problems. Yeah, uh, more than that. I mean, they were adventuring into the unknown. They were going on an awful bus to to university. They didn't know, and you know, and associated with that is obviously all these anxieties of their parents and the teacher and themselves about where they were going and could they learn from experience how to adventure into the unknown, how to read to find information that would help them, and all of these. The whole range of what you were just calling competencies, there are a whole range of these talents uh, that are normally entirely neglected by schools. This ability to adventure, to take initiative, to find other people to help you and so on. They're normally completely neglected. But those were the things that the parents and teachers that we interviewed in 1962-63, they were the things they wanted schools to do. Mm -hmm. But they just get eliminated by, as you say, this emphasis on reading things in books and regurgitating it and so on. So they were developing multiple talents, multiple components of competence in relation to this particular thing of trying to collect scientific information. So, I mean, this is a very important generalization. It doesn't really matter where you start so long as you start with engaging the children's or the subordinates motivation and then in relation to that they develop these talents you know these components of competence in relation to something they are motivated to do and then they can transfer the, these to doing other things so it, there should be a shift from teaching as telling to teaching as promoting to, to the ability to problemize into the unknown. Do you see any chance for a teacher to, yeah, to pass on the skills to help children to learn these skills? Uh, the, I mean, the unfortunately, what you have there, you've moved the problem 
there's been this increasing constriction of what schools and universities and, and indeed uh, workplaces can do. I, I, in fact, um, I'm starting to think about your mother and how the company that uh, you uh, were associated with had much more time to engage with these wider issues. Now there is much more pressure all the time uh, to compete in this hierarchical society. So you've got this uh, emphasis on hierarchy of what is called ability in schools, what is called ability in human resource development in organizations, and much more constriction across society. And this becomes, uh, this moves the problem, if you move it to that level, to what we've been trying to do more recently, which is looking at these social forces, which are pushing everybody in this direction of emphasis on hierarchy and single factors of ability and competition, a race to the bottom. And what are the social forces behind that? But so you've moved the problem of <laughs> moved the problem of developing the scientific understanding that these children were doing in relation to the river water to the problem of understanding these social forces in society and how do you intervene in them. They were trying to study the river water and we were trying to to study the, these wider forces in society. Now, we can then go back because that's very interesting in a sense. But these two, well, these two boys were not the only boys in that classroom uh, or class. Mm. And uh, in relation to you, what can you do about these things? You then move to other things because actually uh, it's very interesting because some of the other pupils said, oh, no, there is no point to try, uh, trying to study these things. Like, there's no point in trying to study the social forces that lead us all to do what we don't want to do, which is what I'm saying. And they say, well, there's no point in trying to study this river water. Everybody knows the society or this river water is a mess. The problem is to do something about it. So they weren't going to go and, and do a scientific study, which is what the boys are doing, which is what I'm doing. They were going to go and try and do something. So what they did was they went out and they, they uh, collected samples of the dead fish and the dead plants from the riverbank. And then they came back and they um, started drawing uh, pictures of these dead fish and dead bank, big ones. Um, uh, and then when we, this was a very old school in this small area, and they've got one of these kind of uh, uh, pointed roofs, not not a flat ceiling, a pointed roof with rafters and things in in, in the roof space. So at some point we went back and they'd got these uh, pictures poster-sized pictures of these dead fish and dead plants hanging from the roof, uh, the joists in the roof. And then other people said, okay, um, uh, it's all very well to have these dead pictures, the pictures of the dead fish, you need captions. So they started writing uh, again with the idea of encouraging other people to do likewise. So they were writing slogans, captions. And this again is very different from the kind of writing you do in schools, very different from the kind of art you normally do in schools, very different from the kind of uh, writing you do in schools. 
again, to satisfy external criteria normally. And they were trying to write in such a way that when they got people, parents and other people from the village to come into the school, they would be motivated to do something about it. Okay, so you've got another uh, answer, in a sense, to your question about how do we move from this trap in which we find ourselves as a society. Uh, multiple ways of doing this that different people can take up uh, in relation to societal change. And then there was another very interesting thing. Uh, one of these pupils um, was, in a sense, uh, notoriously disruptive. He knew how to um, create kind of create chaos very quickly in the classroom, and he did it deliberately. Um, and he got other people to collaborate in doing this. And the teacher somehow worked it round to, well, could he go? Well, they found out that the uh, local environmental standards officer knew about the problem in the water, but had done nothing about it. So could this pupil uh, use his expertise at creating disruption, to create disruption around this guy so that he would actually do something. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they moved the whole thing out. To, um, uh, what then happened was that the factory that was responsible started uh, telling the parents that if this, the activities initiated by these pupils were successful, they would go out of business because the cost of dealing with the pollution would put them out of business and the parents would lose their jobs. Now, this, of course, uh, created this anxiety for the teacher because the parents then started telling the teacher, uh, look, you must stop this. So you could see we were there and the teacher was kind of um, uh, brushing her face, you know, very anxious, what should she do? So she asked the pupils, are we going to stop this? And they said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to stop this. <laughs> um, so what they then did was they started finding out about what were the costs of dealing with this pollution and starting to get information about how much it actually would. So now you've got these pupils involved in understanding how uh, political systems worked, how these bureaucratic accountabilities worked, studying the accounts of doing this uh, arithmetic, to study these accounts and these statements made. Uh, so you've got moved the whole thing. And again, so to go back to your earlier question, um, what can we do now? If you generalize that in a sense to the wider society, uh, one is saying, well, there must be a whole series of different actions people could take to try and stop this international pressure toward hierarchy and testing and restriction of what goes in schools and restriction of what goes in universities. But it's not at all obvious. It wasn't obvious what to do there. But hopefully, 
some people will be able to take up different aspects of this. Some people can do something in their own homes with their children. Uh, some people can do something in their workplaces. Some people can do something in the wider society. But there isn't a specific uh, prescription at all. And it very much follows from the kind of image emerging from how do you do something about pollution in this river? That wasn't what I intended to say at all. But anyway, there you are. <laughs> if you add to them to learn these competencies, it would be a bit too much. Uh, suppose you are a school director. How, how would you set up? Would you simply reduce some of this learning that they have to do today from their, um, yeah, but their general um, knowledge they might would then lose, isn't it? Well, that, that's one of the questions. Um, it's exaggerated because this formal knowledge has a half-life of a year. That is that's the same as the half-life of radioactive substances, which people understand that the radioactivity of a substance <coughs> declines by half every year. So after one year, it's gone down to half, then it loses half of that after the next year and half of that over the next year. So this knowledge that you've acquired in schools, first of all, it's out of date when it's taught, um, it's mostly only remembered for an examination. And then even what that which has been learned declines at this rate of losing half every year. So after one year, those pupils um, have forgotten half of it. After two years, they've forgotten 75% of it. After three years, they've forgotten 82.5% and so on. It never entirely disappears. But very little of it relates to anything they will ever need to do in their workplaces or society where the jobs change continuously and people get promoted after they've been recruited and so on. It's a terrible mess. Um, so this knowledge-based education is essentially a waste of time. And that's how the, the government department commissioned our work in schools. That's where they started, that um, 95% of the work that was being done supposedly as project work in schools was a waste of time. And actually we also know, we also studied other schools, what was going on at the normal teaching of reading and writing and, and mathematics was dreadful, um, absolutely appalling. Um, and it shows up on these tests, the knowledge of which then we know is very quickly uh, forgotten doesn't relate to people's needs and so on and, and people's needs change. So these other general competencies are actually much more important. So the question about change, this is why you go back to this wider question of how do you, it's an international pressure for uh, this success of this competition, but it's actually destructive and it's destructive of society because what's happening is that this production of more and more goods and so on uh, is consuming um, huge quantities of environmental resources and then the disposal of that is showing up in the destruction of the soils and the seas and the atmosphere and so on. So highly destructive. So this, this is going back to our earlier question, how do you bring about change in the overall society? Um, go back to individual schools again, just as 
those schools we were studying were a very small 5% of schools were doing this. The rest were following this stupid national curriculum stuff, which has got worse, as you say, much, much worse since we, we and much more vindictive. So schools and teachers that don't do it are punished much more than they were when we did that work. And there are horrifying examples. But again, going back over this 50 years, the other way around, every so often, um, we came across some head teacher um, who would essentially say, hey, no, this is actually destructive for most of these pupils, and let's change the working of the whole school. So I remember one of them um, had taken up his appointment and the kind of first week he was so shocked he closed the school down for another two weeks mm-hmm. and then started organizing, he said, um, well, around the school there are all these playing fields and things. There must be some archaeological interest in under the soil in these playing fields. So then he got the whole school essentially doing what those pupils were doing in the archaeological site at the Hillfort near the school I talked about. All sorts of people doing different things in relation to that project. Um, So in a sense they're developing even more important reading skills, even more important scientific skills. The whole thing becomes the development of much higher level of these reading, writing, arithmetic talents than is ever measured, measured in these tests and so on. Let, let us get to Holmes. <laughs> um, <laughs> upbringing um, of the children by parents. If I want, as um, my case, as a father, want to help my child to develop um, the competence of problem solving, is it would, would it be a good uh, idea, for example, um, to create a situation in which is difficult or in, in which helps the child to learn to do difficult things, to solve difficult things? And if so, how can I motivate the child to do this? <laughs> ah, well... Uh... <clears throat> As it happens, I mean, this is another area of work that we got involved in over these 50 years. This local government in this area where I'm living at the moment, they had uh, been persuaded that the early years of childhood were extremely important and that what mothers did with the children in these years, two to three year old and so on, uh, was extremely important. So they decided that there were areas of deprivation in which mothers were probably not doing these things that these experts thought they should do. So they uh, found some um, teachers who were also parents and these mothers went into the homes of these two to three years old children supposedly to show the mothers of the children 
how to relay to their two to three year old children. And this went on for, I don't know, I don't remember, six months, a year, I can't remember. Um, so some of these, let's call them middle class mothers, were relating to uh, so-called working class mothers and supposedly showing them how to uh, relate to the children. But what they found was that they could not actually do with other people's children the things that they did with their own children. So in the course of all of this, we spent a lot of time talking to mothers both in these so-called deprived areas and these middle class areas. And again, there's a lot of variation between parents, parents and mothers and children in their priorities in child rearing. So for example, when they were asked about how important was it to encourage their children to read books and so on, some of these mothers said things like, oh no, I wouldn't want him poking about in books. Goodness knows what he might find. So they were opposed to the very things that schools were trying to inflict on schools, like this reading of books and so on. And a lot of adults are going changing subject in a sense. When you're looking in relation to reading, um, something like all 16-year-olds in Scotland can uh, read at some level. By the time they're 22, about 25% of them can no longer read at the most basic level. So they've lost these reading skills because they're not required. So you've got large proportion sections of the population who actually don't need to learn this conventional reading. They find out by talking to other people and so on about everything. But it's been made worse, as you were saying, by making more and more uh, verbally based testing of regulations and so on in relation to being a plumber or digging holes in the street or something. But going back to these ch children, so you've got parents with very different priorities. Now, some of them set about creating these developmental environments we were talking about in their homes. So they would try to find out what it was. This is very, very young children, about a year, two years old what kind of things they were motivated to do and encourage them to do that. Now, some of these were things that the parents themselves didn't really approve of. It's, again, going back to the, uh, the, the differences between different areas, many of the people in these deprived areas were concerned that the children developed toughness and strength and ability to stick up for themselves in the community. And so they would create situations where even these very young children would essentially be put in situations the way they'd learn how to do that. So these big variations in, in what parents want. But what they were all trying to do, not all trying to do, some of them were trying to do was to create situations in which they used, identified the kind of things children would do. Our children, we had one who from very early on was only interested in Roman forts and 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 um, uh, battles and so on, um, and he's gone on doing that. He's now 
45 or something, and he's still doing the same thing, still pursuing this. Another one was only concerned with Greek goddesses and their concerns. session in relation to a, another very disruptive child in a traditional classroom. But then these teachers made some assessment of this child and concluded excellently. He really knew how to create disruption in the classroom. He would study what was going on, find a point of intervention, get other people to help, get feedback, improve his uh, ability to, to do this. And they said, but we can't have children creating this kind of disruption. We have simply to stamp out this. I thought, why not? The CIA is full of these people. The army is full of these people. Why are you trying to stamp out these abilities? And the same in, in, in industrial uh, or in, in employing organizations. It's often necessary to have some people who engage in industrial espionage outside the organization to find out what other organizations, even on the other side of the globe, are doing and to interfere in their activities to stop them getting ahead in this race and so on. <coughs> so you have to start by saying not being judgmental about the different things children are trying to do, and but in relation to that, nurture their self-confidence, their ability to learn from the effects of their errors, to recognize when things are getting out of control and they better get help in relation to whatever it is that motivates them to start off. So you accept the variety of different children's motives as far as you can. Obviously, parents have some difficulty <laughs> accepting some children's motives, but um, accepting their motives and harnessing them with a view to leading the children then to develop these other uh, competencies like this ability to adventure in the unknown, to find information, to persuade other people to assist and so on. So I have to identify what what their talents are and uh, uh, what is... Yeah, what's this, horrible, what's this horrible child interested in doing? <laughs> what, what, no, what, what is... Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> What is important? Well, what, what what competences they are, or what talents? Uh, well, what, what, what is, you asked uh, about motives. Is the, nah, the key and, thing is what what is the uh, the motive? Once you've found out, realize what it is that motivates the child to feed the ability to do that, mm -hmm. and the ability to do that involves all these other things like confidence that they can persuade other people, that they can find information, that they can do things and learn from their errors, uh, that they can get help when things are getting too difficult and so on. So they're developing these components of competence in relation to what it is they want to do. Have you done some studies also in kindergarten? Because maybe in there it's easier since it's not that hierarchically there. To, to to create um, situations or to help children to develop 
their their talents? Yeah, no. The short answer is no. Uh, I have not myself been involved in that. I do look at again these governmental prescriptions that are coming out about what parents must do in their homes and what teachers must do with very young children and are really quite horrified because they're trying to prescribe in very limited ways what children shall quotes learn so that they're learning particular things rather than learning to invent learning to lead learning to put people at ease and so on these are all things that people can learn to do but they're not viewed the word learning is used in such a way as to mean learning this academic content so-called memorizing so word, isn't it yeah the, the word learning has been corrupted into this very uh, restricted usage maria montessori wrote quite uh, uh quite a lot about developing these feelings of confidence to do things and setting aside time in a sense to really think about things and so on now montessori educators again we have not worked systematically with them but again they vary enormously the ones that say they're doing montessori education vary enormously from one to another but some of them are again trying to create environments in which different children do different things and become confident in doing those things and, and again they find themselves under huge pressure to conform to these international uh, so-called standards uh, for what children should be able to do at particular ages and so on so there's a big battle going on within the montessori movement between the extent to which people, uh, these young teachers of young children are trying to uh, conform to government prescriptions and mm. those which they believed to follow from Montessori's work. Thank you, John Raven, for, for the very interesting interview on multiple talents and developmental environments. More on this you will find on Ion Society on your website ionsociety.co.uk slash resources slash resources.html uh, uh, resources slash full list all one word full list dot html is there any and other then, uh, yes if, if you go to that website and that list toward the top there is an article called problems with closing the gap philosophy and research the closing the gap has to do with trying to reduce the difference between high and low achievement problems with closing the gap philosophy and research um, that's very important because it takes uh, the reader on to these issues we discuss later on to do with changing the hierarchical nature of society um, but there are on that website there is also for example all the chapters of a book called managing education for effective schooling which summarizes what i was saying about the work of this project work and so on within schools okay okay that's interesting so ionsociety.co.uk slash resources slash full list um dot, dot html dot html yes um thank you john 
and thank you for listening to to the to to this program <laughs> <laughs> and i wish you a good day <laughs> happy christmas <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. okay okay